So this week's episode of the Ortho Show features Rafi Merzayan, who's an orthopedic surgeon, brother of another mother in Southern California, sports medicine specialist. Love his passion for orthopedics. His story is remarkable of growing up, learning five different languages, going through multiple countries, which we'll share, and then English being his fifth language, finally coming to the States, and then succeeding through high school, uh, medical school residency. He now is one of the leading orthopedic surgeons in Southern California. He just has a great story. We love it to share it. We're also going to talk about Shoulder 360, an amazing new shoulder course that's going to be uh, in April down in, uh, in uh, South Beach in Miami. We'll be there. The Ortho Show is now co-branding with Shoulder 360 as well, offering educational entertainment, as we like to say. You're going to like this episode. Hashtag follow the fro. From Medical Media, this is The Ortho Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of The Ortho Show podcast where everyone knows we bring you the best and the best in orthopedics. And today is no exception. We're bringing you a brother of another mother for me, Rafi Merzayan, who's an orthopedic surgeon, sports medicine trained out of Kaiser Permanente, spent some time at Curl and Job, my home fellowship as well. Rafi, pleasure to have you on, brother. It's an honor to be here, Scott. No, that's fantastic. So, you know, I see you got that Southern California gig going on behind you there. You know, with snow and ice out here in Boston, don't worry about us. You know, we're going to be just fine. <laughs> Actually, that's a Miami backdrop for our Shoulder 360 course, but it is pretty sunny out there today in California. So sorry about that. That's all good. So you got all your rain for five years in one day, apparently, right? Exactly. Exactly crazy, crazy, crazy how the California ecosystem works for sure. But so look, your your childhood story is pretty unique. And uh, I'd love to sort of share that because everybody comes from a different background. Yet here we are, we're colleagues in orthopedics doing very similar work. So but where were you born? And you did a bunch of traveling. Tell us the whole story. I think it's kind of cool. Sure. I'm, I'm Armenian, as you can tell, probably from my last name, but I was born in Iran. And my mom thought that wasn't hard enough. So she put me in a French elementary school. So in the first uh, 10 and a half years of my life, I learned to speak Armenian at home and Farsi in that country and also French in that elementary school. And then uh, the Islamic revolution happened in, the, in 1978. We moved to Germany. My dad worked for a big German company called Siemens at the time. So he, he had friends and contacts. Um, and at that time, I learned German as well, and he knew that eventually we were going to come to the United States, so he, he decided that it would be good for me to learn English, so he put me in, into a uh, military school where all the, all the kids from the U.S. military attended that, that middle school, uh, so I did sixth grade uh, in Germany, um, which had its own challenges. We can get into it if you'd like, but, but yeah, that's my story. That's amazing. So have you been able to keep up on your language skills? I mean, it can't be too easy here in the States. Well, I, I still speak Armenian at home with my mom and my parents, my family, uh, Farsi with some friends, French. When I go back, it's it's like the computer chip is implanted in my brain. I, it takes a few days for it to come back. And uh, the accent is is the part that's that's nice that I've retained. So when I do speak it, the French people are like, what, you're American, you're from the States and you have this accent? Like they're, they're puzzled. 
when I speak to them. So it, it is kind of nice. I love it. Je me parle Lefro. Now, Lefro does not translate <laughs> in French. I guess it's chevelu. Je me parle chevelu. Crazy hair is what I've been told. But the, uh, uh, that, oh, I love it. That's awesome. Um, so, so when did orthopedics, I mean, you got all these languages, you got all kinds of options, you're traveling all over the world. When did orthopedics to come to mind for you, medicine, et cetera? Sure. Um, well, I always knew I wanted to be a doctor. I, I, at the age of eight, I saw a dead frog with, that was disemboweled and I was just mesmerized with the internal anatomy. And, and, you know, so that just captivated me. And at the time, my uncle was a cardiologist who was uh, working in the United States. And every time he would come back to Iran to visit the family, he was just looked up to as a god and just revered. So those two things in my childhood made me just want to be a doctor. So from the age of eight, I, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. Orthopedics specifically, I, I actually did my first two years of medical school at Mount Sinai in New York. But my family was in L.A., so I would get a like, summer internship um, to, to do, to, to come back home and be close to family. So I did a, a summer internship in the orthopedic department at UCLA, did some research, saw some arthroscopy and that was it. I was just hooked. Uh, I knew from that moment on. And then also in medical, I, and then I transferred to USC, LA County, USC medical center for my, uh, last two years of medical school. So in the clinical years, I did my orthopedic rotation. And as a third year medical student, they're letting you put in IM nails into the tibia. I mean, if that doesn't, if doesn't, if that doesn't grab you and want to become an orthopedic surgeon, then I don't know what else will. So yeah, those, those, it, those, it, <laughs> it may push some people away. It's like jam a, a rod down somebody's fever. But for us, there's no question about it. It's exciting. Right. It's fascinating, et cetera. So, I mean, let's roll the, the footage back just for a minute. So, I mean, you've traveled all over, you're in Germany, and then you're going to come to the States to go to high school. And you obviously were a great student. You went to UCLA undergrad, which is no easy feat, you know, uh, in the California public school system. So, uh, so obviously, you know, when, so was it high school? Did you get high school done at, in LA at the time or? I did. I did. I went to a local prep school, a private prep school, which I'm literally two miles away from right now. I live right next to it. Uh, I think that really prepared me for for college uh, academics and got me on the right path. And but it, it was definitely challenging. English was my fifth language. I I, I struggled with it. Struggled with the SAT, uh, the English portion of it. But fortunately, with with the support of my parents and my teachers and and everything, and just that internal drive, I just knew I had to do whatever it takes to to make it into medical school. So um, I, I just that desire was always there. That that drove me. And that's great. I mean, because as a foreign medical grad, to try and come into to practice in the United States is really challenging. And we've had a bunch of ortho show alums that have done it where you have to do multiple fellowships and three additional years of training. But it was worth it to sort of get in, get to the States and then be able to really crank it out and, and go forward. So off to Mount Sinai for a couple of years. And, and it's interesting, not a lot of people transfer in medical school, especially halfway through. Was there just an opportunity to come back where family was? And so you jumped on that as an option? Yes, uh, that's exactly why. Just family. My, we're, Armenians are very close-knit. My family was here, all my cousins and aunts and uncles. So, um, And I always knew I wanted to come back to L.A. This is where I wanted to live. So it just uh, it just worked out. Uh, um, yeah, in the clinical years, there were w more uh, spots at USC. So it was uh, relatively easy to transfer for the clinical years. Yeah, sure. And I mean, it, it's just fascinating to me because there are so many 
you know, Iranians, Armenians uh, that just want to come back to Southern California. And it's not easy. You know, there are so many jobs. Ramin Modaber is a dear friend of mine. And, you know, he, we tell his story on the Ortho Show. And literally, he got the job in sports medicine at Santa Monica Orthopedic Group that opened up in the first time in 10 years. So for you to be able to develop this path and, and get to Kaiser, I want to talk about all of it. I think it's really, you know, commendable to you to really keep your nose to the grindstone to get all that work done and be able to keep keep going. So, so then you do the USC uh, residency as well. So now you're staying in Southern California, uh, which must have been a fantastic uh, four years. Very, the trauma must have been crazy there as well. I'm sure. Trauma was crazy, absolutely nuts. Um, you know, it, that was that's where that was the building blocks of my of my foundation in orthopedics. I mean, learning trauma. Remember putting X fixes on as an intern and putting traction pins for femur fractures and having patients wait in the hallways. And because we're just completely uh, saturated with patients, which was great for our volume and and learning and getting the, the skills. And as you say, the reps, getting the reps in, that was getting it done early on. So um, I'm truly fortunate and blessed to have had that training. Yeah, there's nothing like it. You know, you, you need those reps in residency. And now, obviously, you know, you and I are contemporaries four or five years apart. You know, we were working 120 hours a week back in the day. There was no 80-hour work week. We weren't, getting, <laughs> we weren't getting the oil changed or getting our teeth clean. We were at the hospital in the trenches. But, you know, I think those reps are super important. And going to a program that gives you that, you learn how to become a surgeon. You don't learn how to do surgeries, right? So you Correct. can get yourself in and out of situations because you've seen so much. And, and that is really instrumental in becoming a, a, a great surgeon as you move on. So amazing residency. And you're, dude, you're like, you're still locked and loaded, Southern California. It's going to be right. curly job. Go K-Jock, man. I love it. That's right. That's I right. I, so, that was that was actually one of the funnest years of my training, but it was also the hardest year of my training. It was harder than being an intern in LA County uh, Hospital. Just the number of teams you would cover and number of attendings. And um, I mean, I remember one day on call on a, on a Saturday, I started my day off at like 530 in the morning. We had cases in the morning. I had to go all the way down to Orange County, which is like an hour plus drive to round on patients, come back up, cover a couple of games. I didn't get home till after midnight, but it was one of the best days. And I, that, that's why I remember it to this day, but uh, covered the LA Express, which was one of the XFL teams at the time. I think that was the only year they played, but Somebody fractured their tibia, so I had to babysit him in the ambulance, take him to the ER. I mean, you, you name it, we we did it. It was yeah. it was absolutely fun. It was, uh, it was the same for me. I mean, I vividly remember that year, and it's been instrumental for me for my career forever. You know, hanging up that Curlin Job shingle really has opened doors for sure. I mean, we literally moved uh, from from Boston to Redondo Beach on the Esplanade. You know, <laughs> awesome, so cool. The ocean out there, hanging out and driving up to Sentinella, which is where the you know the hospital and all the training ground was for us forever. And just like you said, I mean. The, you know, working with the Lakers, the Dodgers, the Angels, the Kings, the Mighty Ducks, and, you know, the LA Rams weren't there at the time. Neil Elitraj was working hard even back then to try and make sure that he was going to be the team doctor. But uh, what an amazing experience. Yeah, it absolutely was. It, it's funny because every one of my co-fellows, I think there was like eight or nine of them that year, were all from the East Coast. They all loved it. They all lived in the, on the beach. They yeah. all looked for jobs in LA and all of them went back East. I was the no. only one who stayed in the West coast. I mean, I'm impressed. You that... <laughs> yeah, once you see the taxes and the yes. overhead and everything, you're like, okay, it's, it's not worth it. I'm out of here. 
And then even right. just finding the job is nearly impossible. I mean, there's just not, not a lot of job opportunities that are available because everybody wants to be in Southern California if you can, you know, for yeah. all the stuff that was going on. But so so tell let's give some shout outs to some Curly Joe, you know, attendings at the time. You know, who were we working with? Well, we love giving out the names. Absolutely. Unfortunately, Dr. Curlin had passed by the time I got there, but Dr. Job was truly an inspiration. I mean, an absolute gentleman, so humble, so wise, you know, he, even though he didn't have a, something published, he would just, when he told you something, he, he said it with conviction and he knew he, it was right and you could take his word for it. Um, and, and, and just having had the opportunity to watch him operate and work with him, uh, go to the games with them and not wanting publicity and always sitting in inside of the press room and not in the stand so the camera wouldn't catch him. I mean, just a true gentleman in, in the field. Um, Dr. Yoakum also very humble. I watched him do a lot of Tommy John surgeries. And of course, Neela Eltrosh, who was our fellowship director and a true mentor and leader for us as well. Um, and there, there's just so many, one after the other are all giants in the field of sports medicine. So I, I was truly blessed to, to have been a fellow there. Yeah, we'll throw out Jim Taboni and Ralph Gambardella. Oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. we gotta get gotta get the boys out there for all of them that uh sure. have been a pleasure. But you know, what a what a great experience, you know, for sure. So yeah. again, so though, I, dude, if, yeah, please. If I, if I could say one more thing, I you know, a lot changes. I mean, we you know, we've been in practice over 20 years. I mean, the instruments change, the the anchors change, the the cameras change, things change, but their decision-making process of saying, if you grab the capsule and the labrum here and you tighten it like this, you're gonna over-tighten the shoulder, you're gonna mess up the picture, you should only grab this much. Those are the things that haven't changed. And that's where like watching Dr. Yoakum and Dr. Elitrash knowing exactly how much to take, not to you know jack up someone's future, those are the, the pearls of wisdom that you can't see in a textbook, you can't watch in a video, you, you learn it directly from, from the giants. So that's, that's where I've been blessed. And that's still, to this day, I still do. You know, it's interesting because we're about five years apart. And so Brian Cole and I are contemporaries and we were talking about the exact same year in 95 when we were doing fellowship. Literally, we were just starting to put the scope into the shoulder and we were using sure tax which were these things that were killing people's shoulders long story short i hope somebody from sure tax not going to yell at me but the bottom line is is that in that five-year window you probably were already then seeing you know expansion into arthroscopic rotator cuff repair and labor repairs which five years before we really hadn't so amazing that you know again learning the basic techniques really helps you as we advance because we're not doing the same operations we were doing in fellowship for sure. Yeah, absolutely. We, we're just starting to do like single row arthroscopic cuff repair with metal anchors, metal eyelets, with ethabon suture. And of course, every, you know, more than half of them tore as you went to tie knots and you got yelled at as a fellow. But yeah. that transition, and I actually, I, I'm happy because I, I still saw many open cuff repairs. I still sure. saw a lot of open shoulder approaches. So I feel very comfortable doing an open bank card and, and, and ladder J, you know, and also doing stuff arthroscopically. So I, I was just at that cusp where I got good exposure to both open and arthroscopic. And unfortunately, nowadays, I think in, in a lot of the training, the fellows and residents aren't seeing a lot of open shoulder surgery. So it's important to have that skill in, in your bag. Yeah, no, I completely agree. So, all right. So, dude, you're still like, all right, I'm I'm, I'm in Southern California. I'm not leaving. <laughs> So I'm like, I'm here now, where are we going to get a job? And you go to Kaiser Permanente, which 
I love. I mean, you know, Ron Navarro is a good friend. Nima Mehran's a, a fantastic friend as well. And I think for for someone that's coming out of residency and fellowship who's looking to really be focused on their specialty, what a great place to go, right? Because you're you can be fed the stuff that you want to do very early on in your career. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I knew I'm not a very good businessman. Like I'm not that I wasn't interested in the business of medicine. And I've always wanted to be a doctor. That's all I've wanted to, to be. And the Kaiser was like the perfect place. I could literally just walk in, take care of patients, do the surgeries that I love to do, and then go home at the end of the day. And if I'm not on call, I can turn my pager off and, and spend time and focus on family. Um, and in, in the, within the first two weeks of working there, I've always, I've been behind in my surgical cases. Like I, I have a <laughs> two to three month backlog and that's been there for the last 21 years that I've been there Amazing. because like you said, and it's all pure sports cases. It's stuff that I love the to cases do. that you want to do. I mean, Absolutely. the average, the average kid that comes out of fellowship, you got to hang up a shingle. You got to do the ankle fractures, the hip fractures, take everybody's call. You sit back and wait for your first rotator cuff. And then eventually over 10 years, maybe you develop a practice. So it really is a great breeding ground uh, for a real early opportunity in a career. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the examples, I, I love the elbow. I'm really passionate about the elbow. I, I got there. There was a group of 12 of us. And I said, hey, guys, I love the elbow. You can send me all your elbows. And within a day, I mean, I just got slammed with all the elbow cases. I do all the distal biceps at our hospital. I've done hundreds and hundreds of elbow arthroscopies. So it just, I became the elbow guy. And then pretty soon, a lot of elbows from other Kaisers came to me. Um, so I just developed this like big elbow practice within Kaiser because no one, we're not competing with one another. They don't feel bad, but they're not giving up, you know, food off their plate to give it to me. It's just like, here, you, you love doing it. You enjoy doing it. You're good at it. Here you go. You can have it all. So, so Rafi, you know, one of the other cool things about Kaiser you were just talking about is there's sort of this captured population of patients and research and the ability to, to study these patients with the registry and the volume of, of, of data that you can get out of your Kaiser Permanente population. It really allows you to do some really cool research, right? And be able to publish on that. Remarkable. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. We do have some registries like the ACL registry. The total joint registry, there's other registries that are non-orthopedic, but the, those are in the, in the hip fracture registry. Those are established people with researchers and statisticians. But a lot of what I've done is outside of the registry on my own and, and getting residents and fellows involved and having them do data mining and going through the charts and, and pulling just you know granular data. How many anchors were used in that rotator cuff repair, for example? I mean, when you do these big, large database uh, studies, all you're seeing is cuff repair, it failed, they had revision surgery. You're not capturing that granular data that we can. Um, and like I was saying earlier, if a patient fails with one surgeon, they go to another, even a different Kaiser. Um, we can capture that within our electronic medical record, and, and therefore we can publish on, on large numbers uh, of, of a specific problem. That's great. So this is sort of like a segue as we're going to roll in. And I want to talk about Shoulder 360 because at the Ortho Show, we're really excited about partnering uh, and co-branding with you guys. But before we get there, I wanted to, to talk about one of the operations that you've come up with, which, which is kind of called the biologic tuberplasty. Now, remember, my mother's listening, so we've got to be pretty specific about this so people understand it. 
<laughs> Hi, Judy. Hi, Hi, Judy. How are you? Rafi even knows your name, Bob. Rafi's a big fan. I love it. So uh, that's awesome. So, you know, this one of these operations that we've had a lot of, uh, of talk about is the superior capsular reconstruction. So for our listeners, it's for when patients have rotator cuffs that can't be fixed. We take a piece of skin that's donated from someone else, and then we suture it into the shoulder. And it was, was working maybe 60 to 70% of the time. It was a very popular operation, but there were a lot of failures. And so you were able to grab data out of your Kaiser Permanente process and then come up with the concept maybe of doing it a different way. Um, yeah, so the genesis behind it came, we were following all of our SDRs and getting post-op MRIs on them. And I noticed that a lot of them were tearing, the grafts were torn, but not all patients failed clinically. Some patients did poorly, some patients did fine. They did just okay. And it came very clear that the patients whose graft was torn from the glenoid or mid-substance, basically the graft still covered the tuberosity, those patients did well. The ones where the graft tore from the tuberosity, or there was one case where the graft was just dissolved, you couldn't see it anymore, which left the tuberosity bare, those patients did not do well. And the patients who had an intact graft with the, and, and the patients who had a, a tuberosity covered did equivalent. They did the same way that you had significant improvement in their outcomes and it had equivalent outcomes. So I was, I, you know, I just kind of started scratching my head. I'm like, okay, well, why not just, just cover the tuberosity? Um, and that's, I did my first procedure in 2015, which was at the height of SCR. Everyone was doing SCR. So didn't quite catch on, but there were times when I was intending to do an SCR and I would put the glenoid anchors in, uh, the, the anchors onto the socket side of the ball and socket joint, and the bone quality was so poor, the anchors kept pulling out. So I couldn't perform my SCR, and I knew that I had done this biologic tuberoplasty. So in a few cases, I just did biologic tuberoplasty as a bailout for my SCR. They did well. Uh, as a matter of fact, every single patient, except for one that I've done, um, ha has done extremely well with significant improvements. Um, so that's, and the theory behind it is that when your cuff is torn, it's no longer holding the head down. So when your deltoid fires and you want to elevate your arm, it pulls the, the humeral head up, which brings it into contact with the chromion. So if you have a piece of dermal allograft or interpositional tissue, it's, it's preventing bone-to-bone -bone contact between the tuberosity and the chromion, and it eliminates pain, um, which is something like what the balloon does. And I think the balloon should work be, for, from that same concept. I just don't understand how it continues to work six months and plus once the balloon is dissolved. So that's where I'm, I'm having grappling with. So I, I think of the biologic tuberoplasty as a permanent biologic balloon in the shoulder. I love it. I so I love it. That's fantastic. So again, for the listeners, uh, so the idea, the concept is we can't fix your rotator cuff. And there's these two bones that sort of bang into each other. And that's why you have pain. So we're going to stick something in between the two bones. And hopefully you're not going to have pain. Matthew, Matt Ravenscroft, who's a dear friend of ours from Manchester, England, he's sticking it on the bone above called the acromion. And you're putting it directly onto the humeral head or the tuberosity. And then Joe Abood's got this, this saline balloon that he's sticking in, which I've been doing as well. So I'm excited at Shoulder 360 to get Rafi v. Joe Abood up on the, you know, rolling around here telling us about who's got their best way to go for these irreparable rotator cuff tears. 
<laughs> yeah, that's that, that will be a great showdown. We've been talking about it for years. And I mean, Joe and his uh, colleagues have done an incredible study. Um, it, it, it does show to be efficacious. It is long lasting. Um, so, and mine is at just at the infancy. I just have my personal results. And anecdotally, when I've spoken to other surgeons who've adopted biologic tuberplasty and are doing them, they're all having great results as well. So we need a larger study uh, to also bear it out. And also the, the question is longevity, will it last? And I, my first patient was eight years ago and I just saw her a couple months ago. She still has full active elevation, no pain. Amazing. She's, she has a hundred percent same score. She's satisfied. So I know in that one patient, it lasted eight years at least. So, so um, uh, amazing. So, you know, Shoulder 360 has a really great partnership with industry. So the striker people out there for the in-space balloon that are listening, you know, Joe's going to give you to Joe will be there to represent so we can get that data and be able to share it out there as well. So let's talk about Shoulder 360. I know that uh, in your career, you've been passionate about, you know, about courses. You started a cartilage course in 2007, which then became the Advanced Concepts in Sports Medicine, which then became ICJR and Shoulder. And now why? So you've got experience with running courses and being part of courses. What was, what's the reason for why we need Shoulder 360 and why it's unique in the shoulder course space? Yeah, I, I think, um, the the main reason is that we we our approach is just a new innovative uh, approach to medical education. You know the days of sitting in a crowd, listening to a ten or fifteen minute lecture in the dark, PowerPoint after PowerPoint, and then the speaker gets off the podium, the next one comes on, and those days are gone. I mean, you where we live in a fast paced world, we're all in LinkedIn and you know uh, Instagram and TikTok. Everything is about ten to fifteen second attention span nowadays. So we all of our lectures are short. And more importantly, after every lecture, we have a panel of judges who are experts in the field who are going to critique your talk, what they liked about it, what they didn't like about it. It's just like having an editorial in the arthroscopy journal after each article. You get someone who's a thought leader in that field to give a commentary on, on the article. So we're going to have four expert judges who are going to critique every single talk. And it just keeps the audience engaged. It's very uh, dynamic and interactive. We have audience polling and participation. Um, and games that are educationally oriented, like we we did Shoulder Family Feud, and it was it was a huge hit. Everyone hung out and participated, and was it was you you laughed and you learned at the same time. So um, I, I edu think edu that's educational entertainment, we love it. That's what we do here at the Ortho Show too, right? We're Absolutely. trying not to bore you for sure. So who should go? Who who are the people that should attend Shoulder Three Hundred and Sixty? I think it's uh, it's mostly for the for the general orthopedic surgeon who's interested in sports medicine, shoulder surgery, recovering from from the you know some of the basic beginning to 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 medium and some advanced. But more and more sports guys are doing shoulder arthroplasty. Like myself, I just started doing reverses, and I I do need to get some training and some background in shoulder arthroplasty, and and I think we provide that for for that. Um, I think. Um, you know, docs are in the first few years after a shoulder and elbow fellowship training. You know, you've seen it in fellowship, you're doing things in practice and you're like, you're still trying to figure things out. This is another, uh, this course is another great way to, to kind of put, help put all the pieces of the puzzle together. 
Yeah, and I and I really think that the faculty is super approachable, right? It's not just an interaction of a didactic lecture with some dude on the podium. I mean, there's interaction with the attendees, with the faculty. It's relaxed. You can go up and talk to anyone, have ideas, conversations with some of the people that are the best in the business, but still down to earth, willing to share, bring it to the table and have a conversation. Absolutely. We have a very friendly atmosphere. Everyone's open. It's very jovial, very fun, very kickback. Um, so it, the faculty is very approachable. We have over 70 faculty, internationally known faculty. Um, we have, I think, seven or eight either current or a previous uh, ASCS presidents are on the panel. We're also going to have a live interactive uh, session with the Berlin Shoulder Course where we're gonna have a live feed, a transatlantic live feed with the Berlin Shoulder Course. And it's gonna be shoulder surgeons who've had shoulder surgery and giving their own experiences and, and trying to educate and what they learned, what they, you know, what they do differently uh, after having had shoulder surgery themselves. So we have four guys in the US and four guys uh, in, in Berlin who are gonna give their side of the story. That's awesome. That's a really unique perspective as to what the results for a seasoned, you know, master shoulder surgeon talking about their personal experience undergoing certain, you know, shoulder surgery. Well, look, I don't feel bad for you, Rafi, as I know that you're sitting in Southern California in 70 degree weather, heading down to South Beach, Miami in April. But I can tell you, Paul Sethi, who's in the ice storm in, in uh, Connecticut, and me with snow in the backyard in Boston, we're looking forward to South Beach in April for sure. Great location for sure. Yeah, that's one of the main reasons we picked Miami. I mean, there's so many courses, there's so many options The you know, the topics are relatively the same. It's just the way we do it. Our, I think the three of us, Joe, Paul and I have a secret sauce that we work really well together. The topics will come up with the spin that Paul Sethi and his crazy brain puts on things. Um, and also the city of Miami is just so, so underutilized with medical education and, and it's perfect. It's perfect for East coasters. It's only two to three hours, even from LA, it's only a four and a half hour flight. It's not that far. Um, and it's a perfect time of year. It's not humid yet. It's, it's not cold. It's, it's, it's like the perfect time of year to come down to Miami. So many options for entertainment, food, culture, uh, nightlife. If you're interested in that after the course, course um but yeah the options are are just and and our hotel is right on the beach on south beach it's one of the few hotels that has that and we have the entire floor of the lowe's hotel this year we're, we're expecting a huge turnout so please come and join us yeah i'm going to bring some extra hair product because you know i, I <laughs> the fro down in south beach you never know so i'm going to be ready for sure but no listen rafi okay. i mean this is fantastic i mean i love your passion you're, you're you're a master surgeon been doing this now 20 25 years uh we have so much in in common uh with so much of our training uh it's really been a pleasure having you on i know for one i am thrilled and excited to see you in person for shoulder 360 i know it's going to be an awesome course Thank you so much, Scott. Thanks for the opportunity. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.